dismantling systemic oppression, strengthening local economies, fostering equity and inclusion, cultivating communities for social good. We are motivated to leave the world a more just and compassionate place than we found it. A lofty goal? Maybe. An unreachable goal? Absolutely not. This is Impact Out Loud, the podcast that empowers bold impact for good, powered by Prospera Partners. Your hosts, Vicky Pazaban, Eileen Everett, and Ray Miller, aren't pulling any punches. They are diving deep, unpacking the challenges facing the nonprofit and social sectors, what is and isn't working, and offering systems-level solutions to address the truly transformational leadership that's needed for social enterprises to better their communities. This is the Impact Out Loud podcast. Now here are your hosts. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Impact Out Loud. It's great to have you all with us today. We're super excited to uh, be back and to have Ray here and Eileen and our very special guest and our friend and our colleague and our co-facilitator, Courtney Andar, is here today. I'm so excited to have you all here. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Vicki. Hi, everyone. I'm also excited to be here. I've been waiting for a chance to uh, join the conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah, we're excited. Hey, how are you guys, Eileen and Ray? How are you doing? Good. I, I was holding back from going like, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> the <laughs> excitement for Courtney. Uh, we all work together a lot. So I think it's great bringing even more of our dynamics in. Um, we're not all always together, but I think when we are together, it is really great. So yeah, I feel like we're going to have a good conversation today. Yeah, I'd say any day that we all get to be in conversation with one another, let alone be on a podcast, is going to be a great day. So especially as the world continues to present challenges in all different ways to all of us, this is the antidote is being in conversation and finding ways to continue to connect. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm excited to, to sort of get right into it, actually, because as you all know, if you've been listening for a while now, we do... Uh, educational workshops called Big Bold Impact for Good. And we've been doing them for many years now. And the most recent one that we've done is our uh, cohort on rebuilding an equitable nonprofit sector. And um, we have had the opportunity to have the folks in that workshop ask us questions about the nonprofit sector and to really kind of dig into what, what do they not know about the sector? Because a lot of us came to this work without any background in the nonprofit sector. A lot of us came from other, you know, the private sector or other jobs thinking we want to do better. We want to do good work. We want to figure out how to be better and do good work as well. So we allowed participants to ask us anything. And it was a great session. We had a couple of sessions. And um, one of the questions that came up is a big one. And we're going to dig into it. And we're kind of we're going to kind of rely on you, Courtney, because you have some great ideas and we're just glad to have you here. So we want to hear from you. So I'm going to throw this question out and we're going to dig right into it. So the question was, are nonprofits just upholding and sustaining the harm of a capitalistic society? I'd love to jump in as well to invite Courtney to tell a little bit more about himself as well. And I'm sure it'll connect back to this question as we know you and it relates to your experience. Yeah, um, I just want to say again, I'm so happy to be here. I love these conversations. Um, I live for this stuff. And 
Um, so I'm Courtney Andar, one of the co-facilitators with the Prospera crew here. Um, I moved to Santa Fe in 2016 with my wife. Um, I'm originally from Illinois. Um, I consider myself a writer, an activist, an educator. Um, I do like to include elements of radical theory and history in what I teach, but I don't only educate on radical history. Um, it informs my um, my work, but I, I really am uh, very concerned about you know ways of thinking about living in a better world, a more equitable world, egalitarian values, horizontal values. Um, I really like to talk about issues in the nonprofit sector because I've uh, worked at several different nonprofits. You know, I'm not like a 20 year vet like a lot of people are um, in the nonprofit sector, but I feel like I've had a lot of diverse experiences at different agencies and also in the educational um, institutions as well. So I just bring some of that personal experience. But, you know, I also just want to preface, I don't have any original ideas. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I don't like create any new ideas necessarily that haven't been said before. I am just obsessed with researching and reading things and watching educational content and learning things and just really being self-educated. Um, but yeah, I live here in Santa Fe with my wife now. So I, one of the things about that question, um, are nonprofits just perpetuating, upholding um, some of the harms of a capitalist society? That One of the things about that question for me is, well, what is our understanding of capitalism, right? Like, what is capitalism, right? And, you know, I teach about a lot of different things, and I really like to emphasize the importance of definitions and kind of creating a foundational understanding for what these issues are about. And capitalism is one of those things where your definition kind of depends on which part of our culture is informing your understanding of how we live in our society, right? You can take a mainstream approach. And I, I don't necessarily use mainstream derisively. I just want to say that. I say mainstream in terms of what is a surface level common understanding of, of what we're talking about. And with capitalism, you can really see it as like, a mode of production, right? So if you understand Marxist history, socialist history, understanding critiques of capitalism and the mode of production, the fabrication of value that comes out of uh, taking resources and extracting labor from it, labor creates value, right? Um, you know, when we talk about uh, economics, we talk about critiquing capitalism, you have to understand where value comes from, right? Capitalism is an economic system that uh, places taking value out of capital, right? So capital is extracted from resources. Value is added to those resources through labor, right? So let's, I'm just going to say this. I'm a person who studies economic history. I study radical theory, revolutionary theory. I exist on the left, the so-called left. I'm making the, the bunny ear um, uh, apostrophes here with my fingers. Um, <laughs> air quotes. Air quotes. We use air quotes all the or time. Or the left, right? The <laughs> left, whatever that means. So that's our critique, right? Our critique is that labor adds value, right? All value in a capitalist society is extracted because we sell our labor as workers in this economy. And, that, and then those who own the, the modes of production, so those who own the firms, the corporations, and the other kinds of means of production, those people extract value from our labor. They sell the resources that are created through that process at a profit. They extract value from that, and then they take the profit. 
And then workers, what ends up happening, that those who actually add labor to the system, we take home a salary or, you know, we take home some kind of compensation and a set of benefits and a set of reasonable accommodations that we're supposed to have in the workplace. And then we're, we subsist in the economy. Now, the workers subsist in the economy. And some of us thrive depending on where you find yourself. But the owners are really the ones who thrive in a capitalist society. The, the folks who own the method of production, the modes of production, they're the ones who really get to thrive. The rest of us often have some varying degree of subsistence in the economic system. Okay, so that's capitalism. Courtney, would it be fair to just add in here that that profit piece that you said that's tied to labor is just, it's very unevenly and and inequitably distributed? That's right. Absolutely, Eileen. I 100% agree. I mean, and the stratification in society is just one way that that manifests, right? Specialization is another way that that manifests. So specialized labor, depending on how it's labeled and how it's professionalized, is assigned a greater value and therefore you get a greater level of subsistence or thriving in the economic system and where you find yourself on that set of on that ladder of skills right wherever you find yourself on that ladder that's how much um value you can expect to receive from from giving your labor in that economy i know you know i I'm kind of talking off the cuff and I know I'm not using all the exact phrasing from like Marxist ideology or your macro econ 101 course in college, which is part of liberal education now. But that's a general understanding, I think, um, of, of capitalism and what it is. So, you know, it's important because when we're talking about the nonprofit sector, right, and some of you who are some of our listeners who are who took some of our courses before know that we actually teach on the history and the development of the nonprofit sector as sort of a parallel track to the for-profit sector, the way that it came out, you know, all the different societal norms that existed at the time that gave rise to the nonprofit sector. And then the question then remains is, well, is the nonprofit sector actually that different or does it really exist on a different plane than the capitalist economics and capitalist firms and corporations that we see, you know, proliferate our communities today. And the question is, is the nonprofit sector actually that separate from the capitalist system? And the answer generally, just from a foundational understanding is no, in a general sense. Now, there are, of course, obvious differences to the way that nonprofit organizations and agencies operate. Those are important to understand, right? moving away from the from the profit model, trying to extract capital and value from communities, away from the model of competition. You know, that that's a whole nother conversation about competition in the nonprofit sector, but generally not overvaluing the idea of competition. Um, service, right? A kind of selfless service, a, a kind of volunteer nature in the nonprofit sector that we bring to trying to help alleviate um, some of the issues that happen in our communities. And the nonprofit sector, unfortunately, was never designed outside of the system that existed at that time. It was never meant to be a different system. It, was, it never existed on a different plane, right? 
I have so much to say. (laughs) Well, and I think it also just to name, I mean, so much going back to that history and there's so many layers, but this is just one piece of it is it was meant to fill in gaps, you know, and I'm using Mm -hmm. air quotes right now, gaps of, of where the government wasn't supporting lots of air quotes are being used right now. Um, (laughs) And, and so, I mean, I think that's part of one of the layers is that it didn't exist outside the system. It was Mm -hmm. definitely an intricate part of the system. Right. And that goes back to what Courtney was laying out of this sort of owner class or subsistence class, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're either controlling what's going on or you're just kind of in in the flow of whatever's happening on like the ground level, right? In the nonprofit sector, that looks like the foundations, the boards, kind of these economic powers that still are holding – you know, the sector together. Yeah, that's where I was going to go with this, because one of the things that we see in our work is the question of who owns nonprofits. Mm. They are meant to be 100% transparent. You can ask any nonprofit for their financials. You can find them online. You can look up their 990s, their tax returns, right? Do it. Races, do (laughs) Do it. it. Look up their 990s. Look up those salaries. Especially foundations especially foundations, but who really truly owns nonprofits. Can I just insert for some listeners who may not know what a 990 is, just to kind of refresh some minds too. So every year, so nonprofits to have 501 status, which is established by the Internal Revenue Service, that's a federal status, and there's many different types of 501. There's over a dozen different 501 um, statuses that you can have, is it's a requirement that nonprofits annually have to file a form 990 and it can take different, just like how we file personal income taxes. We have different types of, I think it's a 1040, as I recall, um, that we might file similar for nonprofits. They have to file a 990 and that information is made public federally and Almost every state has very specific rules on how that information needs to be filed at the state level. So the easiest way to see this 990 information is literally to go to your search engine, put in the name of the nonprofit, and just put in 990-990, um, hit, hit enter, and often you'll you'll see all different ways to view that 990 information. But it is a requirement to file that annually, all different information on, on the financial end of things and other things relevant to the nonprofit and keeping that 501 status. And like Vicky said, foundations are are nonprofits. So those That's foundation right. numbers are there as well. That's right. And we often separate foundations from nonprofits because they do different things in the sector, but they're all part of the nonprofit sector. Absolutely. Um, so to get back to this question of who owns nonprofits, because Courtney, you said you know, capitalism, who benefits in capitalism? It's the the labor, it's the, the, the owner, right? The owner who's making something. The labor class doesn't make the money. They only make the money for actually providing the service back to the maker, the manufacturer. So in the nonprofit sector, who owns nonprofits? Well, no one. There is no owner of a nonprofit. I have been an executive director of a nonprofit, so has Eileen. We didn't own it. We didn't have a stake in it. We didn't get, we only got a salary. We didn't get a, a stakeholder um, share from the profit of a nonprofit. Mine never made any money. <laughs> I don't know about yours, Eileen, but my nonprofit certainly didn't make any money. It just sustained itself enough through 
revenue that we received from membership and from grant money and donations. And we paid our staff and whatever we needed to do for programming uh, expenses. So nobody owns a nonprofit. And yet, and yet, (laughs) they are still upholding the systems of a capitalistic framework, right? Because it's still a system that exists. And there is the hierarchy of the board of directors and then the staff. And you have the executive leadership staff, which is often the executive director, sometimes a a chief financial officer or a co-director or a... um, a creative director if it's an arts nonprofit. So there's, you know, the director level positions, and then you have the folks underneath that. So it is a hierarchy. And it is beholden to and dependent upon the foundations. So I'm just throwing it out there. Well, I was going to say back to the owners, right? Like, it all defaults back to who has that largest capital investment and Again, something I think we've brought up before, and again, just to let folks know who might not know, foundations are only required to give 5% of their assets per year, which is often all that they do. So a foundation could be worth $200 million, and they're never going to spend that down. They have no intention to because often their money's sitting in the stock market. So there again is that profit that they're benefiting from in the capitalist society. And I think the average stock market return is like 10%. So it's always going to be a higher, not always, but most likely going to be a higher return than they're expected to give Mm -hmm. annually. Right. And where's the money coming from? in the foundation to get a foundation started most of them are com- most of them Banks. have been started from <laughs> they've been, well they've been started through corporations right yes. they use their profits to start up a foundation for giving and for doing good in their community or whatever or what have you most large corporations have a foundation i'm not going to call them all out but there are many 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 <laughs> and even family foundations you know, they've put their wealth together and into a trust, into a fund in order to do good and use the tax benefit for that purpose. So it is the wealthy that hold the nonprofits accountable because that's who we're beholden to. I don't know of any nonprofits, maybe you all have heard of some that don't rely on grant money. Anyone? So I, I want to name, I mean, again, in the spirit of multiple truths and both and that Yes, I would say my experience aligns a lot with what you're saying, Vicki. And I think there's a lot of nonprofits that depend upon government contracts. So there is yes. this government being, you know, held to be beholden to the government contract end of things. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of, right. I mean, there's so many stories on all different scales of nonprofits who literally their their largest source of revenue is a government contract or several government contracts. So there is right. that piece too. It's not just private foundations. Right. And I'll say that the organization that I was the ED of was in fact started because of a city municipal contract to do some economic development work that the city didn't want to undertake. And so that is how the organization was started. And from there it grew and it we ended up getting um, foundation money and various other types of grant money. So yes, absolutely. 
but that's probably another podcast episode yes. <laughs> of government because I worked at a family services organization. So exactly what Eileen is talking about. Most of their funding was actually government related. That doesn't not necessarily that's a better system or easy to navigate, but yes. <laughs> right. So where are we? You know, interestingly, <laughs> the, the the question about ownership and, mm-hmm. you know, the idea about who the stakeholders are in a nonprofit agency and in the sector at large, right? I mean, okay, so one of the things I want to say, because I find this part of the conversation so interesting, especially when we're talking about donors, foundations, you know, fundraising, development, all those different things. And I just want to say, I've been working in the nonprofit sector for about 15 years. I've done you know, I've done tasks within all of those worlds. I've never held a director title, but I have been responsible for different parts of all of those uh, those systems within an agency. One of the things I want to say about how to answer that question, are nonprofits unwittingly contributing to a capitalist model, the capitalist idea? Well, think about the, the hierarchy that we just laid out. Mm-hmm. Hierarchy, I think, is really important in this part of the conversation. So of course there's a board of directors or board of trustees or whatever, you know, whatever term the agency uses there. There's that obviously. So there is a hierarchy inherent there. Obviously the board makeup is Mm -hmm. an integral part of understanding the the kinds of systems that that agency is perpetuating at at Prospero Partners in our facilitated conversations. We talk a lot about opening up the possibilities for different board models. You know, we talk about who has access to even be a board member. Mm -hmm. What does it take to be a board member? Who can actually allow the time in their lives and the energy and the resources in their own lives to be a board member? And I'm saying that as someone who was a board member for four years of an international nonprofit. And so I had the time I had, I was given the ability to do that. Um, I was accommodated by the agency so that I was able to be a board member and work full time as someone who is, you know, only in my thirties have to work full time. I'm not retired. So I don't necessarily have a whole bunch of extra time to be a board member and devote to that. I also don't have money to pay to be a board member, which is often a requirement to be a board member at many agencies is to donate to the organization Mm -hmm. as a board member. It's required. So opening up the possibilities for that other kinds of contributions to the agency that are not predicated on how much you can donate. But then think about the hierarchy. And I want to say often this is unwitting. This is not necessarily something that agencies want to perpetuate, but think about the board of trustees, the board of directors, the director level. So all of the program directors and the and all of the different kind of process-oriented directors. Then there's the associate level, right? There are those of us who are managers and associates, right? We don't necessarily have decision-making power. We don't have supervisory roles, but we're responsible for a set of tasks. Then after that, there's volunteers, We have volunteers at agencies, but they're volunteering. They don't get benefits from necessarily volunteering for the agency. We are not supposed to exchange a good or service for a contribution to an agency, right? Mm -hmm. So volunteers are somewhere there on that totem pole. And then who else is on that totem pole? Our constituents, the people that we actually serve in our communities are also somewhere on that hierarchy or on that totem pole. And I'm not necessarily saying that it looks the same way at every agency, but it is a a reason to step back as an agency and say, what kind of hierarchy are we actually perpetuating here? And is this actually the optimal model for the thriving of our agency and 
to do what we at Prospero Partners call the something different. What is the something different that an agency could do to kind of mix up that hierarchical model in a sense? And so there are so many different ways that both intentionally and maybe unintentionally that agencies, and the thing about it is that agencies are operating in the same environment. We don't exist in a different world. We exist in the same environment, in the same ecological system that the rest of society exists in, including the for-profit agencies. Um, and I, I wanted to bring in a really great quote, something that I've been reading. Um, a few years ago, um, a website called Common Dreams uh, published an article called Patronizing Evil. The nonprofit sector perpetuates the worst legacies of capitalism. Um, and there's a really great, great quote in this article. So um, I'm just going to go to it. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that they're talking about is homelessness. Agencies that, um, that address homelessness is a perfect example of how nonprofits perpetuate rather than mm -hmm. fix problems. Mm -hmm. So the quote is, as, uh, quote, as Erica West writes on, um, on one of the uh, quoted websites here, socialistwork.org, nonprofits frame the terms of what solutions are appropriate. Quote, the fact that homeless shelters exist perpetuates the idea that shelters are the appropriate solution to homelessness rather than more radical organizing or changing the economic model of housing. That's just a quick quote, right? Nonprofits are there to address social issues that already exist. Like, um, like Ray and Eileen mentioned um, earlier, the idea that they're kind of filling gaps that are not being addressed by the for-profit sector, by the free market system, and by the governmental system. And yet, what does it say that shelters, uh, temporary housing, transitional programs, and things like that are actually ultimately the appropriate response to, to a societal ill that was created by capitalism? essentially, by this hierarchical model that we exist in. And so we have to ask ourselves as nonprofits, okay, no one's saying we should feel bad <laughs> for advocating for shelters and temporary housing and transitional programs for our houseless community members. But ultimately, what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world where our unhoused community of people are constantly having to seek these resources for a problem that's not actually being fixed? Right. And so I think as a nonprofit, we have to say, where do we then come in, in that, you know, we want to exist. We, we want our services to be effective. We want to serve the community in a humble manner, but we also want to solve the problem. Ultimately, where does, where do, where do nonprofit agencies fit into that, that effort and that pursuit? Well, I, we, we need to wrap up, but I want to say stay with us, everyone out there, because we're going to come back with Courtney on our next episode and dig into this a little bit more. And your quote did include radicalism as an idea. So we're going to talk about that in our next episode. So stick with us. But before we wrap, we have to end with our aha or WTF moment. So I'm going to ask you, Courtney, first, what is your aha or WTF moment from this conversation? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think my WTF moment is, I think just understanding how do we talk about the issues that the nonprofit culture may unwittingly 
perpetuate and yet realize the radical potential of <laughs> of the way that it is different than the for-profit like like we've just been talking about you all started naming the different constituents and um you know and just the, the system that we exist in we have to file 990s we have to do all these different things to, to maintain our 501 status my maybe it's more of a wtf moment right because it's like wtf do we do you know <laughs> like, like right? what do we do yeah totally <laughs> you know? so yeah. i would like to, to have more conversations about that all right eileen yeah i think i had a pretty big aha moment in this conversation, which is, I think we started with one question, which is, are nonprofits just upholding and sustaining the harm of a capitalistic society? And I feel like we're left with a different question, um, which is really great. That's what conversation should do, lead us to asking different questions. And I think the question that's sitting in this space right now is, who really owns nonprofits, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's listed that it's for the public good, but is that real or perceived? You know, who really does? Is it the board of directors? Is it staff? Is it executive level staff? Is it the constituents or community? And if we can't even really get to the heart of who really is driving the work, how can things ever change and be different? Yep. Yep. Ray? Yes, I have many thoughts. Um, but I did write down as Courtney was speaking, kind of a recurring aha moment. Um, I love Buckminster Fuller. I've tried to make my way through a lot of his writing. Some of it's a bit dense. Uh, but one of his things, he sees very anti-specialization and really drew the line between how even going back to monarchy, there was this like fixation on being skilled at one thing and one thing only. And I truly do believe specialization is encouraged through capitalism, but it takes a kind of more inclusive, holistic, diverse set of skills to address the needs of our current world. And so I, I'm always leaning into that. I've never been super specialized. I'm good at a lot of different things. Um, so I'm bringing that mindset back in of how important it is to have a diverse set of skills to meet our ever-changing needs. Nice. Well, my aha moment is really an aha moment that I hope all of our listeners are having right now, which is this is why we hang out with Courtney because he brings <laughs> us great ideas. Yeah, always has always. Um, super um, passionate, thoughtful, meaningful intention behind everything you're talking about and teaching, Courtney. And I always appreciate that about you. So. Um, so anyway, this is a, a reminder to stick with us for another episode because Courtney will be back and we're going to dig into radicalism as an approach to the something else in the sector. All right. Thank you, Courtney. It's great having you here. Thank you all. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Eileen. See you next time. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Impact Out Loud podcast the podcast that empowers bold impact for good, powered by Prospera Partners. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Impact Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts and follow Prospera Partners on your favorite social media. If you are inspired to make community-based solutions and systems change, Prospera Partners offers workshops and programs that are open to all. For more information, visit prosperapartners.org. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, 
Be well and do good.